Welcome to Protein's podcast, Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with thought leaders doing amazing things around the globe who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. As we move into season five of the Protein community, we begin our mission to unpack the very term community in collaboration this time with Protein Agency for their Dirty Words report series. Adopting a more collaborative, participatory and holistic approach to our research, we'll be hosting a variety of conversations across our channels that will provide the foundational perspectives of our next report. For episode 40, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Mindy Sue, gatherer and editor of the Cyberfeminism Index, an evolving collaborative archive of projects working towards cyberfeminist futures dating from 1985 to 2021. Mindy is also a professor at Yale School of Art and Rutgers University. During the episode, we discussed the upcoming book launch and what the word community means to the Cyberfeminism Index. Hello, welcome to the Protein Discord and thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to be here today, especially so close to the holidays and such busy times. It's really nice to see some familiar and some new faces in the crowd. Hello. Um, yeah, today we're super, super excited about this episode with Mindy Sue, who is author of the Cyber Feminism Index. What a way to end the year, to be honest. So make yourself at home in the Discord and feel free to say hey in the Stories chat channel, which on the left-hand side above the protein stage is just above the stage channel. Um, so in there, you can feel free to chat with each other throughout and spread the love. If you like what you see, then make sure you reply to join to protein um, and a link should be dropped in the chat in a sec for you. Also, if you have any questions for Mindy, then please feel free to drop them in the stories chat channel too, as we'll have some time for questions at the end. So I guess I'll start by introducing myself first. Some of you know me already, so sorry for the repetition, but just for those who don't. My name is Kess and I help set up our events in the protein community. I've also just finished studying an MA in Internet Equalities at the UALCCI in London, where my final thesis became an evolving collaborative feminist and post-capitalist manifesto for redesigning safer online community spaces. So as you can imagine, Mindy's Cyberfeminism cyber Index has always been a huge inspiration for me and I'm very excited to speak to you, Mindy. So enough about me. It would be great to hear from yourself, Mindy. And yeah, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been focusing on at the moment? Thanks so much, Kaz. And thanks so much to the protein community for being here today. I'm excited to chat more and get to know this space as well. Um, I am an assistant professor at Rutgers University and a critic at Yale School of Art. And for the past several years, I've been working on a variety of projects and essays. Um, but probably the one that we'll be focusing on today is the Cyberfeminism Index, which is really a encyclopedic-like volume of over 700 entries of online activism and net art from 1991 to present. And I'm sure we'll be digging into that more today. Amazing. Thank you so much for the intro, Mindy. You're up to such exciting stuff, um, as always. So yeah, I guess today we probably will focus on the Cyberfeminism Index mainly, but please feel free to bring in all of your interests and projects, of course. Um, so let's just begin with the index then, I guess. Um, and maybe you can 
help people in the audience understand a little bit more about what it is. So, yeah, what is the Cyber Feminism Index from your perspective? Um, So the Cyber Feminism Index, I kind of see as an umbrella project of sorts. It was started a few years ago, and it's really taken multiple forms. So first it was an open source, open access spreadsheet, and then it became a website that's online now, cyberfeminismindex.com, commissioned by Rhizome and presented at the New Museum. And then a couple of years later, it turned into a printed publication, which I believe might be on in bookstores in the UK already. Um, it's taken a couple of weeks delay to be in the US. But it really hopes to be a living archive for a variety of global forms of online techno-feminism. Um, so this could, I really like to describe cyber-feminism as kind of a feedback loop. It can't only be about the dissemination of feminism through online channels, but also has to incorporate the criticism of technology through that dissemination. Um, so for example, something like hashtag me too, I personally would not consider cyber feminism because that really incorporates everything and we needed some constraints. Uh, that's kind of an example of feminism distributing through online channels. But maybe something like Gamergate would be considered cyber feminism because it uses online dissemination of, cyber, of feminism while also being critical of technology, especially in the video game space. Uh, so that's a more contemporary example, but this goes back several de- de- uh, decades as well. Mm, that's so interesting and a really nice like distinction to make, I think. So in terms of the index, like how would you describe it? Like, is it like a platform, an archive, a community, or or is this always something that's evolving, I guess? I would really describe it more as an archive or perhaps a living index that very much encourages uh, self-authorship and um, evolution. Excuse my voice, I'm kind of getting over uh, a cold or the flu, so it it might be kind of crackly. Um, But this arc... Oh, sorry, Kez. Oh, no, it's fine. I was just saying you sound good. Okay, great. Um, (laughs) So... The archive then is really hoping to evolve as the project expands and live over time. So the online complement really acts as this space where it's uh, very much crowdsourced. It's still submitting entries. It's really following the pathway of kind of a memory institution. And it feels like a grassroots community archive. The book then is kind of a snapshot or a document of this living space and kind of hopes to give it a little bit more posterity because even if we've tried to make a lot of decisions to make the website uh, live as long as possible, which we'll be talking about a bit later, um, I've also seen historically how quickly websites and new technologies degrade. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. I really like how your work like traverses the kind of like online and digital space and, you know, recognizes that like participating in both those spaces is like very symbiotic. And I think your work does that like really beautifully, I think. What what is the, it's okay. What is the 
post that you said it's kind of like the online website version is like very crowdsourced. So I wanted to ask you a bit, a bit more like about this process, like how do you decide what projects go into the index and how are people involved in this process with you? So when I first started the project, it was really a resource guide for myself. Um, I'm very involved in various techno spaces and seeing a lot of peers deal with experimental technologies and critical technologies. And I was having a hard time finding a robust compendium of resources in that space. So when I was building out this spreadsheet, I was just adding things artworks of my peers, uh, different texts or essays that we are reading. And I shared this publicly, asking other people if there was something in this space that felt related that they could then add. And it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I began to realize that it was actually a, a relevant resource for other people as well. And when I opened it up to crowdsourcing, it is moderated by me and some other peers. But we always try to make sure that if people are allowed or able to self-identify a project that they've made or someone else has made within this umbrella, we really embrace this multiplicitous um, definition as it has historically. One of the first cyberfeminist groups, uh, the Old Boys Network, which the very seminal net artist Cornelia Solfrank was part of, they actually created the 100 antitheses, which was a list of 100 definitions as to what cyberfeminism was not. So kind of built into their history was this idea of it being as adaptable and inclusive as possible and not having clear boundaries. And that porousness, I think you see throughout the index. For sure, for sure, definitely so. And I know you mentioned multiplicity. Um, in such a big like archive of like amazing works from all over the world, how how do you cater for like um, this multiplicity of perspectives included in the index? It really tries to capture um, the multiplicity that you're speaking with, uh, speaking about, but <clears throat> but also the global rhizomatic nature. So a lot of people might assume that cyberfeminism started with um, a cyborg manifesto, the essay by Donna Haraway in the mid-80s. Um, and while some people have been very inspired by this text and it kind of moving into slime theory and experimental net art and things of this nature, globally, a lot of people were thinking about similar themes, but it kind of emerged from a reaction to um, some of the constraints they were finding in this early web environment. So, by and in order to capture this, because the language is different, not all people use the term cyberfeminism. There were kind of stewards in different regions that were able to cull together resources and references from that area. So, for example, in Latin America, I was working with the Cyber Girls. Um, primarily Corazon de Robota and uh, Melissa Aguilar. And they were so helpful in not only pulling together different people I can talk to about the history of Latin American cyberfeminism, but also it's very much underground uh, contemporary spaces as well. Or even in Korea, there's called the Net Femmes. Um, 
And I was working with So Young Chong to make or to provide more of these East Asian references. So it really, really does feel like a collaborative collective project and big embracing of the many, many different strands. And again, using cyber feminism as kind of an imperfect umbrella term rather than a very uh, exclusive structure. Definitely. That's so interesting to hear you say, because I mean, obviously, cyber feminism has been critiqued a lot in the past for being like very exclusive. And it's really admirable how you are like directly reaching out to different people and different communities to be included. Um, And I know that you speak a lot about like citation um, across all your practices. So I wanted to ask you, like, how do you see like citation, like obviously as an important um, tool for like credibility, but also as a tool for community building? Yeah, I think that citation can almost become a practice for everyday life. Um, And I really feel like the platforms that we're on are almost discouraging this kind of behavior. So for example, An early proto-internet called Xanadu by Ted Nelson, who was considered the father of the concept of the hyperlink or hypertext, he was creating this platform that was using two-way links. So it was always pulling up these secondary sources and almost archiving them so you wouldn't lose them um, when you were adding them into your primary document. In web... uh, in the World Wide Web that we're using now, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, it uses one-way links. So this leads to a lot of link rot, where if I linked to a website on the protein page and that goes down in a few weeks or a few years, the link on my page would be link rot or lead to a 404. So I was really trying to not only pull together some of these historical examples of how the architecture or people have been subverting the architecture to encourage more citation, it also moves beyond that technical framework as well. So I often like to cite the uh, Detroit-based activist and scholar Adrienne Marie Brown, and Mm. she is able to incorporate so many citations or references in her writings because she talks about context. So her footnotes almost read as narratives. I was sitting at this lecture and -and so-and-so was speaking and it made me think of this person, which made me come up with this thought. So it feels like a more informal practice of incorporating the number of people around you and before you that helped you come to an idea rather than having to use some sort of academic citation. So I think there are multiple models for how we can really encourage acknowledgement and essentially co-authorship and understanding that no one comes to an idea alone. Definitely. I love that. I think especially in our world today, like we never really own our own ideas. And I love what you said about um, citation not having to be like some academic kind of like dry thing that everyone thinks it is. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you actually like in um, designing, like the difference in designing the book versus like the website or the spreadsheet, like how does citation appear differently, say, in the book than from the website version? Yeah, I think that a big thing that we were really trying to model in both versions was this idea of a cross-reference or an internal hyperlink. So 
while hyperlink has a very digital connotation, um, people always cite early analog references. So things like the Talmud, the primary religious doctrine of Judaism, uh, more classical things like bibliographies, footnotes, indexes, all of these printed examples were kind of tried to, uh, were attempt, they attempted to bring this into this idea of the digital hyperlink. Um, so cross-references then pull you to different parts or entries within the website or the book itself. And then you're able to kind of jump to different things that have a complementary or juxtaposed idea. It works a little bit differently in the book and the website because the website actually has live links that allow you to jump to different areas. But both of them um, are really kind of encouraging nonlinear reading. And if someone submitted something through the crowdsourcing, their name or moniker is always included in the entry itself. So it'll say submitted by so-and-so. And even early on in the process, when I was speaking to people over the telephone um, or through email, and they weren't using the submission field, in those cases, I would cite their submission or their references as referred by, really trying to make sure I was kind of tracking the trail of lineage that led um, for an entry to come to exist in the archive itself. And I kind of wonder if there should be multiple categories, because some of these things really happen in passing. I'll see references when I'm at a lecture or an artist performance. So I really feel like I'm trying to create multiple ways of just citing the trail of influence um, in building or as this index continues to grow. Amazing. I love I love your idea of like nonlinear reading and especially from like a design perspective, like how this can actually manifest. And yeah, the design of the index sort of gives me like a web one energy, which I really like. And I wanted to see what the concept behind this aesthetic of the of um, both the website and the book, where did it come from for you? Yeah, uh, we so I was working with my collaborator, Angeline Meitzler, who built out the database, and we were talking through the different design versions. Um, this was later supported by um, Janine Rosen and Cab Raskowski. Janine helped with the front end uh, code, and Cab was really trying to build out this PDF export. Um, but... For the web 1.0 aesthetic, when looking through all these early examples, we found that the websites that seemed durable online were the ones that were using um, a lot of defaults. So a lot of basic HTML tagging, a lot of CSS defaults. They also weren't using a lot of third-party libraries like jQuery mm. libraries, JavaScript libraries. Um, and they also weren't leaning on so on uh, for that time, new technology. So flash, rest in peace. Um, so this actually, whether uh, intentional or not, these websites, you go onto them now and they still work nearly perfectly. It's also allowed them to update as the browser is updated. So because they're using these kinds of defaults, um, you can kind of tell where, depending on screenshots, when the website has updated, when the browser design has been updated. So for example, even now, because I'm using these default 
um, HTML tags for form elements like drop downs and buttons. When I see a screenshot from Firefox, I can tell versus when someone screenshots it in Chrome because we kind of embrace the, the native styling of each browser. On Chrome, these fields are angular and they're actually slightly bigger. Whereas on Firefox, they have a deeper drop shadow and they have like these curved corners. So I really like kind of using it as a sort of media archaeology approach, but also trying to make sure to the best of our ability now, this website stays online for as many years as possible. Um, I think we've really tried to take an oath of maintenance with this project. And that's also been supported by Rhizome's art base, which really tries to be an online preservation tool as well. So cool to hear all of your concept and process behind the design. It's really, really interesting. And I love how it's all aimed for like longevity so that it can, you know, always be like an archive to serve like the community who who interact with it. Um, so I know you haven't really said like the word community, but for me, it feels like there is such a huge community like navigating around the index. And yeah, what do you think the word community does mean to the project? I think community is a huge part of this project. Um, the writer, Sadia Hartman, describes how a publication is the site of a public, which leads to discourse. So for her, essay writing is a huge moment of a discursive environment. And I feel like this index kind of does the same. So even if there are no um, comment fields, I've really seen how people are continuously adding their own references using the submit fields, but also uh, when you click through different entries, you can download all of this as a PDF, and those uh, selections are tracked in what we call our learning trail. So you can actually see um, how many things were downloaded at different times. We don't store any of this in the back end. We don't store your IP and we don't store your selections, but we do store the timestamp and the quantity. So it's been really interesting to track um, or see how people are continuing to kind of preserve this through these PDFs. And I think if you talk to many digital archivists, they'll kind of claim that preser or duplication is a huge part of maintaining a lot of this very ephemeral, uh, uh, a lot of this digital ephemera. Um, I think also it's been great to see how people are using the contents of the index to kind of develop their own projects. So even today I was tagged in a post about how someone had uh, kind of used a generator to remix the entries of the index, only the manifestos in the index, to develop these new cyberfeminist auto-generated manifestos. So I also like that it's kind of becoming a tool to develop new works. But most importantly, I think that now that we're kind of embarking on this book tour, we're trying to make sure that at every location, we're pulling cyber feminists or technofem researchers from each region to talk about the, not only the book, but just cyber feminism at large. So it really feels like there's a conversation happening and having these public gatherings really feel like a good complement to the material gathering that happened in the index. So it feels like gathering in multiple forms. Definitely, definitely. I also think that's so 
beautiful like the kind of ongoing creations people are making from from the index and it really shows like how powerful it is and how evolving like the conversation of cyber feminism is so yeah how how do you in terms of like gathering people in the physical and digital spaces like how do you find the differences between yeah cultivating community um in both of these worlds I mean I think that we really started to see these new experiments happening during the pandemic so of course, there were a lot of Zoom events happening, but we also saw the rise of Clubhouse. We saw um, people using Jitsi and kind of experimenting with the front end. So instead of a grid of faces, everyone was kind of in their own globe, bouncing around the screen. Um, of course, Discord was becoming increasingly popular. People were also really developing more intimate online spaces. So instead of trying to lean on platforms that already existed, a lot of these new new grassroots tools were also emerging. Um, so I really like seeing this evolution of how people are really carving out online digital spaces that are specific to their intimate communities. Um, and of course, this contrasts with physical environments. We are, we can have a lot of different forms of language that we're reading into. Not only textual language, but spoken language, visual language, body language, etc. So there's different types of nuance in both fields. Um, I think there's also like an emergence of prompts or different ways people can interact in either space rather than just having the more conventional conversational format or maybe like a lecture panel format, I see this rise of like facilitated conversations um, of people being able to chime in using different chat fields. I even found that when teaching a lot of Zoom classes or even on or physical classes, if I kept the chat bar live and on the screen, even if we were in space together, more introverted or shy students were able, were much more uh, likely to participate in class. So I liked this dynamic of just trying to maintain these hybrid environments. Um, and I think people now more than ever are analyzing what forms of gathering are working and how we can kind of shift these dynamics in space or online together. For sure. That's so beautifully put. And um, when considering like the fact that we can create these more like in, um, intimate online spaces now, just like how we created our own protein community discord that came, came out of the like pandemic and needing to have more of a like um, two way dialogue with our community. And I'm wondering with the cyber feminism index and like your process of like moderating it yourself and everything, like would you ever consider setting up a more like intimate online community space for the cyber feminism index and handing any of these like sort of like moderation processes over to other people in the community? I think that would definitely, when thinking about the evolution of the project, I do think trying to create a more literal discursive environment would be great just so, because I'm also so curious, like if people, how people are resonating with certain things within the index itself. Um, and sometimes people tell me, and sometimes I'm sure these conversations are happening elsewhere. So I think that building out um, more of an explicit community 
or participatory or communicative um, environment would be really amazing. I think right now it just comes down to bandwidth. So I think once thinking about these different constraints are actually really nice. But again, as we think of this as a very, a project of a lot of longevity and seeing how much cyber feminism is uh, evolving over time, trying to map that and talk about that publicly in some way, I think would be really valuable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from our experience at Protein, it, it is a lot of work and requires a lot of bandwidth, but it's also very rewarding um, at the same time and something that we do feel like has longevity if 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 it's maintained properly. Um, but if you ever do it for Cyber Feminism Index, I'll be there. <laughs> um, That's great. <laughs> but I know that you've said a few times that cyber feminism is like very evolving in its definition and very different to different people and different communities. How do you see cyber feminism evolving as we head into 2023 or how would you like to see it evolve? Yeah, I mean, I kind of talked about the differences in regions, especially in the taxonomy. Um, I think mapping how it's evolved from Web 1.0 to now has been important for me, even Again, if these are very blurry boundaries. So in Web 1.0, it was really felt like there was an excitement about teaching people how to get online. So we see a lot of educational resources popping up, a lot of online communities, a lot of web rings and things of this nature. Um, And then we kind of moved into this platform space where we... We're now seeing the rise of like hashtag activism. Um, It was expanding into these larger, uh, more global communities and also supplemented by a lot of conferences. So we see some social gatherings happening in space. Um, Amidst all of this, we also see some very experimental net art and um, the rise of very provocative language. So this is where slime theory really comes in. People saying like the clitoris is a direct line to the matrix and Shuli Chang (laughs) creating video art pieces about IKU coders collecting orgasm data. Like this is uh, kind of throughout this entire three decade uh, time span. I think towards now in like late web 2.0, we're really starting to see a lot of um, dystopic understanding of the rise of these platform oligopolies, how it's no longer serving us, and also the internet becoming quite ubiquitous. So as it moves into uh, non-screen based spaces, we then see how cyber feminism begins to connect more with ecology and economy. So this is like solar powered servers, people thinking about um, Mm -hmm. what local internets look like. Um, And of course, sex workers have been a huge part of cyber feminist movement, and they are often like some of the first adopters of new technologies because their work on traditional platforms are so policed. Um, So they're constantly being forced to embark into uh, crypto or developing um, anonymous or pseudonymous ways of communicating online. And we kind of see this occurring more and more in Web3 as well. 
But I think in the future, what I'm excited about is seeing how this evolves in different regions and maybe how that regional gap is uh, perhaps no longer even a difference. Um, so it's like this mix of this feeling of the local, while it's extremely expansive, um, we see a lot of alternatives popping up in opposition to these oligopolies that we're seeing. We see some people who are interested in Web3, some people who are very skeptical of it. Um, and I think for the most part, it's always been focused very much on the body and this idea of the avatar and how both of these or both of these are quite politicized and how we can kind of use technology to supplement that in some way. So for me, it really feels like it's almost will no longer be screen-based whatsoever um, and really be treated as kind of this, this understanding that technology moves beyond the digital and how to kind of modify bodies and thinking about the body instead. So maybe kind of cryptic, but just kind of mapping some of these strands, it's been really fascinating to see how much similarity there's been, but also um, these clear through lines as we move through these different waves of web's evolution. For sure. I'm also really excited to see like in the near future, how kind of like the local comes back into it. And I've seen some really amazing projects about solar powered, like community ran internets that I um, yeah, keeping my eyes on very avidly. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit now about like your kind of personal journey throughout all of this. Um, and yeah, I know you're very in this space now, but what, what was your relationship to technology and this field like while you were growing up? Yeah, so I, it's interesting because my parents were very conservative. So we had dial-up and we had some access to the internet, but for me, it was kind of a way to kind of sneak around. Like even for the RTV stations, my dad would delete or block a lot of stations. So we weren't able to watch a lot of things. Um, so when we were first using AIM or online messaging, um, learning how to code for the first time, I remember uh, there were these rise of... Uh, randomized chat messaging like Omegle or chat roulette or things like this. So I thought this was actually a really fascinating way to get exposed to a lot of different people in different areas, but also this permeation of uh, pornography online and how that was very much shaping um, not only becoming a new sex education, but in many ways reinforcing a lot of the sexist and racist stereotypes that we see compared to any other live environment. And there have been many studies about how these tropes can are exaggerated in pornographic spaces. And we see people kind of retaliating against that in the cyberfeminism index or kind of reclaiming that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that even like starting to learn how to code or thinking about these types of tools, it would really felt like a way to retaliate against um, maybe like the heavily policed or safeguarded uh, way that I grew up. Um, and it also felt very expressive. Like I'm not great with 
pen to paper, but being able to use a lot of these digital tools to create images, create graphics. My background is as a graphic designer. It just felt like a way to supplement some of my other things that were less refined. Um, So I really liked how coding felt like a different language in many ways and being able to, um, to use that to express things in new forms. Wow, that's really beautiful. And I mean, as somebody who really actually struggles to code, I really admire, admire that and admire how you use it. Um, so like expressively and creatively throughout your work. And how old were you when you learned to code, actually? Um, I think that like most were for many people. Sometimes I think it must have been MySpace where we were using like CSS to modify our the front end of the website. Like it wasn't anything too heavy. It was very much leaning on um, uh, just tweaking it, understanding like what makes certain changes happen. If something were to happen through a mistake, also realizing, oh, that's actually kind of cool. I didn't realize that kind of glitch would actually serve like work in my favor. And then it kind of started to build static web pages. So again, this wasn't using any JavaScript, but just leaning on HTML and CSS and learning how to kind of push something online, it felt really liberatory because it was such an open way of publishing. I actually wonder if any of these web pages are still around. I haven't tried to find them. Um, I would love I to really see them. Like, yeah, I'm so... I'm, I'm curious, but also afraid to kind of revisit those um, early blogs. I think at that time, blogging was also so huge. So I remember using Zanga, if anyone knows of that blogging platform. Um, But yeah, in many ways, it it, it felt like a more expressive web, at least in my uh, personal journey. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. It made me just think just then, like platforms like MySpace actually encouraged you to learn code and like design it yourself. Whereas now, you know, the platforms now kind of exist under the guise of that, like, oh, create everything yourself. But actually, you know, we're moderating everything for you and creating everything for you. Like, what if the platforms now encouraged us to code like the old ones did? I mean... Yeah, why not? <laughs> I really wonder like how we can kind of reskin these sites in some way. I was helping right. a friend who had a Squarespace website and you're you are able to modify the CSS a little bit, but they make it very difficult. Like it, I think it's clear that for them it's also part of this larger like brand identity. So mm. that kind of physical um or uh visual manipulation is something that they discourage i think it also leads to like tech support and all these other things but it's for me i understand the value of some of these templating tools but i personally really gravitate towards like making a simple microsite much more than uh trying to lean on something where everything starts to look very much the same so yes i'm pro static web pages (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Everything online has become so homogenous now. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I would love these platforms offering like ways for people to get creative and also just to boost your skills. Like these platforms are meant to be helping us like thrive. Um, You know, it would be really cool to see 
if somebody was able to make something where we could all like adjust our like platform skins or something because I think also it's a lot you can't just be like oh everybody can code their own platforms you know not everybody has the skills to do this and the time and like the energy um mm-hmm. and also we already have enough enough tech really I guess um so yeah let's ask the platforms to give us our skins back <laughs> well uh, well and not even skins but I think it's also like data portability like if you upload a lot of things into, I don't know if people here use Arena, it's kind of like a research-based Pinterest, they have a very robust and public API where you can use Arena as a CMS and import your content into any other website. Whereas, let's say Instagram, you can't embed your Instagram images easily into other spaces because they very much want to keep you on the platform or lead you back there. So there's an incentive for these spaces to feel as siloed as possible and kind of lock you into a platform and own your content. Um, So I think this is also another reason why I very much encourage trying to look into that black box, figure out how websites work. And even if you're making a simple one, I think it, it, it feels quite empowering to just know how a website lives online. A hundred percent. I mean, everyone or nearly nearly everyone with access to technology, um, you know, interacts with it every day and really doesn't have like the transparency to see how it actually works or also believe exactly. that they can use it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that would be really, really, really nice for more platforms to have more integrations. Um I know that we've had some questions asked, which sound really amazing and I can't wait to get into, but I wanted to ask you one more question before we go into those. So I know that you're an educator now, um, so I wanted to kind of flip it on you and ask you what your own education journey was like towards this point. Yeah, I think that um, all throughout high school, I was very interested in like extracurricular, designing t-shirts, designing flyers. And that really made me interested in graphic design, even though I didn't understand what exactly that was. So I was studying design media art at UCLA and really wanted to be a book designer. Um, But I think by working with a lot of people who were in new media at UCLA, it made me realize how complementary these mediums actually are. And books, websites, performances, installations, all of these things are different manifestations of the same body of research, or it can be. So at UCLA, I really focused on software and uh, graphic design or branding, as they call it. But then after kind of working in studios for a long time, we were working with like high tech tools and toys, but it almost started to feel like glamorous advertising for things I didn't even have access to. Um, So I really then wanted to focus on not only focusing on the external layer and the technological layer, but also what the content was and how I could be someone to facilitate that. So then I went to Harvard's Graduate School of Design and got a design research master's And this was kind of the early starting place of this index because it was kind of marrying together a lot of the things that I had been interested along the way and was very much reflective of the communities that were, that I was in. Um, So maybe not too much of a pivot, but I think that moving from 
the more visual skin and thinking of design as a holistic research-based practice has really served me. And I think I see this happening a lot in peers and contemporaries as well as as we see um, our bylines becoming more and more multi-hyphenate. So now instead of, while I do have many friends who are kind of experts in one specific area, it's also exciting to see how people are not only designers, but they're also writing things and they're curating different projects and facilitating different gatherings. Um, And this for me um, definitely shapes my interests just as someone who suffers easily from from boredom. Um, So yeah, (laughs) multi-hyphenation, I think, um, or this interdisciplinary nature uh, has felt very resonant to me. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so nice to hear that the index view has kind of been like a holistic sort of gathering of all your interests along along the way. And mm-hmm. yeah, I also love everyone now is just like a a polymath and everything. Like everyone yeah. embla- embracing the multiplicity within themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we've got a really nice couple questions. Um the first one is from Andrea um, from the Protein Community Core team. I would love to know from you, Mindy, what is your take on developing collective knowledge? What are the values, the tools, the practice you prefer? What works that you didn't expect and what really didn't that caught you by surprise? Andrea is a big fan here and is walking in the rain while listening to this, like the first oh. time he listened to the Surface podcast. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you, Andrea. Um, I think that for me, developing collective knowledge has really been about starting small. So I realized that there are these huge compendiums online. And even now, the CyberFem Index also feels quite large. But it initially started as a tool for myself, as a way for me to learn more about the work of my peers. Um, And it just so happened that this then resonated with people outside of that uh, more intimate space. So I think then I was able to kind of tailor this collection towards defining this project as it evolved rather than having a very uh, clear set of constraints in the beginning and omitting people because of that. So I think that the process of collecting the information or even building out the different collaborators and partners felt like a very, very natural process that moved as uh, the project moved. And I, looking back on this, would not change any of that. I don't know if that's perfect for every project, but it definitely felt very organic for the way this project um, evolved. So it kind of reminds me of Walida E. Marisha's concept of fractalism, where now when we're all so focused on scalability, we just scale out these systems proportionally without uh, reflecting back on the scales of people who are using them. Fractalism starts small, responds to that specific community that you are a part of, not just gazing in on. And as these things grow, it evolves as the new members join. So for me, this like spiral shape has felt very generative. But thank you so much for that question and that nice comment, Andrea. Appreciate it. <laughs> so cute. Thank you for answering that, Mindy. Um, we have another one from, also excuse me if I say this wrong, Chroma. 
I think, um, who has asked, have you experimented with any blockchain related tech as a part of your archival process? Yes. Uh, so one of my mentors at UCLA was Casey Rees, who started the Processing Foundation, um, but also Feral File, which is a very much artist-run online exhibition space. And he invited me to curate a show as kind of a benefit sale for the Cyberfeminism Index. And I was able to invite people from all generations of this movement. And I think for many of them, except one, it was their first time minting an NFT. Um, it was actually kind of tricky because this was right as uh, everything was dipping hard. But still, I think it was a great experiment in figuring out like, what are different types of auction models for this? How do we make sure it's as accessible as possible? So actually creating um, uh, multiple copies of each piece at a set price rather than creating this like inflationary auction, uh, highest bidder auction practice. So I think working with Casey and his team at Feral File was really helpful. Um, and also just made me think about perhaps the potential for artists in this space, even if it's not necessarily one that I'm very active in. That's so interesting. Thank you, Mindy. Um, there's one more question. So I'll go ahead and ask that before we finish up. So this next one is from um, LWLSN. Apologies if that's not correct as well. Um, so they have asked, do you have any thoughts about how coding plus error slash glitch and their associated aesthetics connect with cyber feminism? Can coding be an act of feminist resilience? And did you have any encounters with this when making the cyber feminist index? Yes, that's a great question. So the error, the embrace of the error, the embrace of the glitch, this uh propensity towards hacking, all of these things are very much within the ethos within early cyber femme to uh, its contemporary evolutions. So Legacy Russell, who wrote the afterword for this book, uh, she's also the author of, the, of Glitch Feminism. Um, and during the first book launch at the New Museum, we invited Mackenzie Wark, who's the author of A Hacker Manifesto. Um, and there's so many people who kind of talk about glitch aesthetics and coding, not only as uh, technical coding, but uh, coding that we've kind of been acculturated with as we've grown up. So this idea of hacking not only considers hacking into written code, but also hacking into the coding that we've kind of embodied over time and how we can kind of subvert that understanding or reclaim those spaces. So within a technical and med more metaphorical or social angle, coding and the glitch has always been considered very liberatory in this space. And I actually haven't seen that waiver at all um, in my studies of kind of these three decades. So interesting. I'm also a big fan of Legacy and her work as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also saw the conversation that you both had as well um maybe i can link to that in the community at a later date but it was really amazing and i'll share that around with everyone to watch as well oh thank you so much <laughs> 
Um, okay, cool. So for everybody in the audience and everybody listening at a later date, I wanted to ask like, where will the book actually be available for people to buy? Um, you know, this side of the pond in Europe, is it going to be like online? Yeah. or stores? So this is kind of confusing to me because it was actually printed in Belgium at this press called Graphius. And for the US, it's stuck at some, on some cargo ship at Customs right now, but it should be available in US bookstores by mid-January. But people have been sending me photos of this already on shelves in Europe and the UK. So I think the easiest hack to get around high shipping fees if you order from Inventory Press is to actually call your local bookstore have them receive a shipment and then you can just buy it from them at cost without worrying about shipping. Um, but if you also wait till later January, we'll be having a few events in the UK. So this will be at Whitechapel, I believe on January 26th. I think that event listing is up and we'll also be holding an event at Goldsmiths that following Monday. Um, and I think it will also be sold at Goldsmith's Bookshop, which is called The Word. But that yeah. said, I don't have the full stockist list, so I'm not actually sure which bookstores and venues will be holding this. But I'm sh- I think it will be, it will definitely be available at Whitechapel. It might be available at Serpentine. Um, and if you can't find it, please DM me, and I will point you in the right direction. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that's such a good tip as well about just bringing up the bookstore and asking to buy direct. <laughs> definitely, yeah, yeah, do. definitely support your local bookstores. Hundred percent, hundred percent. We'll be making sure to share all the links that we see of where you're popping up in London and the UK um, with our community as well, so they can keep up to date. And all of us in London will definitely be attending the event at the Whitechapel Gallery for sure. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing you in London next year. That would be really nice. Yeah, it would be great to finally meet in person. Thanks so much, Kaz. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, And I really appreciate appreciate you joining. We're all massive fans. Um, Yeah, and I look forward to seeing you next year a lot. And before you go, actually, how should people best contact you if they do want to DM you? Yeah, I think I'm I'm on Twitter, but rarely use it. I'm much more active on Instagram, and it's just my name, Mindy Sue. And also feel welcome to email me. So that's mindysue at gmail.com. But yeah, I definitely look forward to continuing this conversation with all of you. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you.